Let me tell you about Dr. Émile Caillé. He was a French philosopher who was born in the 1890s. He was brought up as an atheist, and he never showed the slightest interest in spiritual things. In fact, he never saw a Bible as a child or as a young adult. And he had no time for the Christian faith. Um, he was 19 years old when the First World War began, and Caillé served as an infantryman in the trenches. And as he sat in the trenches, he reflected on his life and his worldview. And he found it deeply lacking. He asked some big questions. Where did life come from? What did it all mean, if anything? What value are science and theories in the face of reality, especially the reality of war? And he later wrote, I felt that I was destined to perish miserably when the time came. Now, during the long night watches, Kaye began to yearn for a book that would understand me. He was very educated, but he'd never come across such a book, a book that understood him. So when he was wounded and released from the army, he returned to his studies with a new goal. In secret, he was going to prepare this book for his own use, a book that understood him. So as he was studying, he filed away really good quotes and passages and extracts from his uh, reading that seemed to speak to his condition. And he would then copy them into a leather-bound special book and hide it away. And he hoped that these quotations, which were carefully indexed, would lead him from fear and anxiety to freedom and joy. Now, at last, the day came when Emil put the finishing touches to his book, the book that would understand me. He went out and he sat down under a favourite tree and he opened it and he began to read. But instead of release and joy, he felt a terrible sense of disappointment. He realised that these passages in the book, they just reminded him of his quest and his search and how he'd written them down. They couldn't set him free. The book did not understand him. It was a book of his own making and it had no strength of persuasion. He was dejected and he put it back in his pocket. Now at that very moment, Madame Caillé, his wife, came by with an interesting story. And I imagine her carrying a baguette, a bottle of wine and some boursin. Emile, oui, ça va? You know how it goes. She'd been walking in the village that afternoon and she stumbled upon this small Protestant Huguenot chapel she'd never seen before. And she, for some reason, went in. And she met this old man and he turned out to be the pastor of this church. And he gave her a Bible. Now, she was feeling a bit embarrassed about the story because she knew that Emil wasn't a great fan of Christianity. But he, bizarrely, he was suddenly interested. A Bible, you say? Where is it? Show me. I have never seen one before. Maintenant. I'm running out of the extent of my French here. <laughs> and he grabbed it. And he rushed to his study. And he started to read. Now, this is what happened next in his own words. I opened it and I chanced upon the Beatitudes where Jesus says... Blessed is, are those who are poor in spirit, they will have the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth, and so on and so forth. I read and read and read, now reading aloud with an indescribable warmth surging within. I couldn't find words to express my awe and wonder. And suddenly the realisation dawned upon me, this was the book that would understand me. I needed it so much, and yet unaware I attempted to write my own in vain. He continued to read deeply into the night and he says, Lo and behold, as I looked through the Gospels, the one of whom they spoke, Jesus Christ, 
the one who spoke aloud and acted in the book became alive to me. The circumstances amid which the book had found me now made it clear that while it seemed absurd to speak of a book understanding a man, this could be said of the Bible. Its pages were animated by the presence of the living God and the power of his mighty acts. To this God I prayed that night, and the God who answered was the same God of whom it was spoken in this book. Emil Kaye became a convinced Christian. He eventually settled in America where he taught at Princeton. Now, like Kaye, we are asking some big questions in our church here for the month of September. We're particularly asking a question, who am I? Who am I? In other words, we're thinking about identity. (coughs) Who are you? Have you ever thought about it? You need to know. You're all sitting on a chair. Now, a chair just is. But a human being needs more than that. We need to feel that we exist in terms of some standard, something out there that's more important. We need something beyond ourselves to give our lives meaning and coherence. Let me give you an example. A woman could be single, often depressed, earn an average income, be resentful of her father, and have an optimistic view of her country's future. Five things. But this doesn't make an identity. Those five things are all temporary features of her life. They can all change. Any one of them on its own could change. And none of them is large enough or solid enough to be the core of an identity of who she is. So what does she relate to? How does she come to grips with the reality of her life and who she is? To answer those kind of questions, she needs to know what kind of world she's living in and what her place is in it. She needs to know what she values. She needs to know if there's any self worth searching for. Now, each one of us has a master story, a picture of what the world is like and how it works and how we fit into it. And in the light of that master story, we interpret the meaning of our lives. We need it. We can't take it away from human beings. They need for something beyond on which to base our identity. So let me ask, where are you going for that identity? Where are you looking for that kind of meaning to your life? Where is your master story? Western cultures used to have a high view of humankind as the image of God. It was a radical view. It was a view that came from the Bible. Abandoning the Christian faith has left us high and dry with problems we cannot solve. You think that you've got more dignity and value than a lobster, a stone, or a tree, don't you? But what foundation have you got for thinking that? Take God out of the equation, and it's very hard to hold on to a high view of human beings. For many people, humanity is on the same level as an animal, in theory. But we don't think or feel that way about ourselves. Where are we going to look for identity? Now in this sermon series, our story in his story, we're going back to the Bible. And as you know, the Bible's a very big book. It's written over hundreds of years by different authors in different languages. We could get lost in the foothills and go wandering off in the details. So instead of hiking through the foothills, we are getting into a helicopter and viewing the the whole mountain range. A friend once asked me, what's the Bible all about? Is there a beginner's guide? 
Uh, great question, and here's an answer. The Bible is a story with four movements. Creation, decreation, recreation, and new creation. That is a map for the whole of this big book. And it, it will make sense of our lives if we put our story in God's story. And we will find, if we follow the story, that like Emile Kaye, this is a book that understands me. Now the first stop on the road is creation. We sung a bit about that this morning. We thought about it last week. The Bible's understanding of who we are begins with like a majestic opening movement like a great symphony. Dun 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 What is that? Beethoven's fifth. A great symphony, a great opening movement. And in the creation, it's the bringing of order and beauty to chaos. God brings form where before it was formless. He fills what is empty. He creates light where there was darkness. Sorry about the lights going on off earlier on. That was my daughter. <laughs> Visual aid. Switching the lights on. Genesis uses language of God separating waters and bringing out dry land. Islands, continents, land masses. It's like he's pinning back the churning chaos, waters, and bringing stability. He's creating the conditions for life to flourish. And creates habitations, sky, and birds to fly in it. Sea, and fish, and sea creatures, and whales, and other weird things to swim in it. And land, where he creates birds, and, uh, sorry, not birds, beasts, from the elephant to the grasshopper. Extraordinary to think about the biodiversity of that original world. Now, I was trying to find out on our reliable guide, the internet, how many species have become extinct. And I couldn't get an answer, but I know the answer is here because Andrew Porter is here. How many species do you think have become extinct? Most, Most of them. <laughs> is that true? Wow. I, I'm a bit speechless. Most species have become extinct. He said it. Just imagine the biodiversity of the world at the dawn of creation. But Genesis records the creation of one creature with more detail than any other. Humankind. First humans are unique. They're created, so they're like other creatures. But they're also persons. So they alone are like God. Because God is personal. They're not animals. They're created persons. And so this creation story explains the essence of of our identity. It teaches two things. We were made for community and we were made for mission. We were made for community because we were made Sorry, this thing doesn't like me. But I'm going to master it. So I'm, I was made to rule clickers. <laughs> we were made not an accident. We were made by an us, we thought last week. God says, let us make man in our image. For those native Mancunians, let us. <laughs> now, who is this us who made us? Well, we thought about that last week. It's God. Three persons in one God. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all individual. They're all unified. God himself is the first community. A relationship of love throughout all eternity. The father is the father because he relates to the son in love. The son is the son. He loves the father and obeys him. There's a relationship going on. We were made by a personal, relational 
God. We were made for community and we were made for mission. The Bible says we have a purpose. The purpose is to image God, to be his image bearers in the world. How do we do it? By living as kings and priests. And you're thinking, I don't feel like a king or a priest. What is kingly about us as humans? Kings rule. They exercise dominion. In chapter 1 of Genesis, we see God ruling, and then he commands humanity to rule and subdue the creation. Now, ruling can be taken in a very broad way. It can be understood in the widest possible sense to include any kind of mastery. A child learning to master their body so that they can walk or talk or ride a bike. It's mastery, it's dominion. This can include designing a website, writing a poem, making a relationship grow. That's mastery. And as image bearers of God, created to rule, this is who we are. And if this mastery is blocked by other people or by ourselves, it has a negative effect on our identity. It leads us to feel helpless and sometimes to hate ourselves and others. Kings. And then there's the priestly role. Adam was to work and keep or guard the garden, the Garden of Eden. Now this garden is a very special place. It's, it's written in quite unusual language. It's kind of like a sanctuary. It's described with sanctuary terms. It's got lots of gold there, onyx stones, bedellium, which smells very fragrant. It's got fruit trees, living waters. It's got an entrance on the east side. Now, all of those things, they might look like random details, but in fact, they're all true of the, of the sanctuary where God meets his people later on in the Bible, the temple. And Israel's priests were to work and keep the temple. They had a job to do. Listen to God's word, obey it, and bring him acceptable worship. And in Genesis 2, we saw Adam naming the animals. Now, this isn't just saying, I think I'll call that dog Buffy. This is, that's a dog, and that's a coyote, and that's a wolf, and that's a chihuahua. You know, it, it's classification kind of naming. It's a, it's a way of exercising mastery over the world. He's, he's kingly, he's ruling, but he's also keeping the word of God. He's been given a word. You can eat from any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that, you will surely die. So he has a word to obey by trusting God. Now, if Adam keeps the terms, keeps uh, what God has told him to do, carries on in the project, what will happen? Humanity will fulfill its mission, which is to fill the earth with the image of God and the knowledge of God. Now, this doesn't just mean making lots of babies although some procreation is involved, it also means extending the borders of the garden into the untamed world outside, caring for the creation and developing it, so to get the most out of it, and filling the earth with people who worship and keep God's word. In other words, culture creation. So human beings have purpose. They ha they're made for community, they're made for mission. And the things that make community work are the word of God and the presence of God. God's word, his instructions, make life work. And being with God in his presence gives life. We were meant to relate with God in the equation. Now, we finished last week saying we're made for community mission, and we still are, but something's gone wrong. Everybody wants a world of peace, harmony, justice, 
and care for the environment, not just Miss World contestants. What happened? This week, the symphony moves into a, a second movement and the music changes. Dun, dun, dun. I have to look over here. We've got a composer. and I know he loves my music. <laughs> Chapter 3, we discover what went wrong. Now, this is sometimes called The Fall. Not after a famous Manchester band. <coughs> Look at chapter 3. It's even got it added into our Bibles there. The Fall. That's not original. Um, you don't have to call it The Fall. It's not necessarily a Bible word. And the writer, Steve Timmis, says that this word fall is actually a very inadequate way of describing what happens. I think he's right. What image does a fall conjure up in your mind? I mean, unless you're very ancient, a fall isn't that serious, is it? It's kind of a one-off. Oops! Oh, get up again. <laughs> Watch out for banana skins. It doesn't do justice to the severity of what happens in chapter 3. A better way of describing it is... decreation. Decreation. Because here, in chapter 3, the enemy of God, in the guise of a snake, is not just seeking to trip up human beings and make them fall. Later Bible writers reveal that this snake is actually Satan, an angel who has gone dark. He wants to unravel, wreck, smash, destroy, pervert, pollute, and twist everything that God has made. It's decreation. It's a subversive attempt to take down everything that God has set up. And he seems to enjoy a fair bit of success, doesn't he? But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Back to the main question. What is this all this teaching us about identity? What does the decreation do to our identity? And what does it do to those elements of made for community, made for mission, that we thought about in chapter 1 and 2? And in answering these questions, I've had a lot of help from a friend and pastor called Johnny Woodrow, who my wife accuses me of having a bromance with. <laughs> what a terrible thing to say. And I want to say that this next part of my sermon is, is almost wholly plagiarised from my friend. I've, it's all recorded on here. So, Johnny, if you're listening to this, thank you. <laughs> it's always easier to beg forgiveness than ask permission. What do we learn about this? Well, in the decreation, community is corrupted. Community is corrupted. Community undergoes a, a radical transformation and collapse. It's not what it was, it was before. Adam and Eve's disobedience of God is a crisis of relationship. It comes from a breakdown of trust. And you know, if trust is gone, it strikes right at the heart of community. If you can't trust someone, you can't have a relationship with them. Melissa and I uh, have several children, and we're, in, we're busily engaged in this business of trying to rear them which is harder than it looks. But there's one thing that we take more seriously than almost anything else with the children, and it's lying. Lying is, is, is the, almost the most serious thing they can do. Why? Because if there are lies, there can't be relationship. You can't trust each other. So we really take that seriously. And Adam and Eve here stop trusting God. They start believing a lie that the serpent feeds them. They, you see, they fell before they even ate the fruit. They fell the moment that they believed that the snake was ripe. 
Satan had claimed that basically that God was untrustworthy. He says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So he's implying that God's word is rubbish. He even says, you won't surely die. And he says, he implies that God's word is rubbish because God has a hidden agenda. God wants to promote himself at their expense. They're losing out. So Satan says, you know what? If you do this, God knows that you're going to be like him and he doesn't want that. He, wants, he doesn't want your good. Implying God is a liar, an arch manipulator, driven by his own jealousy or a superiority complex. So the community of humans and God broke down when Adam stood by and said nothing. And the breakdown was confirmed when Eve took the fruit and then Adam ate as well. The eating was a commitment to remake society around a satanic view of God. And as they rebelled against community with God, they also rebel against God's purpose of community with each other. So their relationship falls apart. You can just imagine it, can't you? When God comes looking for them, and he puts them on the spot, what have you done? And they start blaming each other. And blaming they replace the key aspects of community with principles that they come up with. Our word will dictate what's right and wrong, because God's a liar. Our judgment is going to determine good and evil. And our glory will be at the centre because God's a tyrant. So God's purpose of bringing glory to himself through human relationships is now being replaced by man's agenda to work for our glory and our reputation. So this episode, the decreation, is the first glimpse of a human-centred community. And what it shows us, interestingly, there are two ways, at least two ways, in which community goes off the rails. Firstly, community can become about codependency. And secondly, community becomes about shame management. Community becoming about codependency. Eve sets up the first support group for self-promotion. She hands Adam the fruit and says, get that down, you lad. It'll be good for you. Why? She sees that Adam has a problem, she thinks, that she shares. Adam is not fulfilling his potential as a human being. He's held back by believing in God. So she offers a solution. Eve here is setting herself up as a saviour. She will save Adam in his quest for self-fulfilment. And handing the fruit over is an invitation to a community of me-centeredness. It's all about us, not about God. Now, in the West, particularly in the friends culture uh, and Facebook generation, community can be a context for self-promotion, mutual self-promotion. In the TV series Friends, six people identify with each other. They gather closely together. They live in, in uh, neighbouring apartments. But they gather around self. And they operate as a support group for self-promotion. And they're... Relationships are full of lies. But they're saying, you can be who you want to be and I can help you. And we can find a community to affirm you and celebrate who you are. A community where you can bear your deepest struggles, usually the things that are going to hold you back from self-fulfillment. But it's a community in which relationship happens through neediness. Here's how it works. One person says, I need you. I need you to need me to counsel you. 
so that I can be essential to your self-promotion. I will find identity by helping you and counselling you and being your therapist. And I'll help you get through this change process in your life. The other person says, oh, I need you to be my counsellor. We will connect over my needs. And then we can rotate the counsellor hat and I'll help you fulfil your potential. And it's community as therapy. Human beings dependent on each other with no reference to God or the outside world. People setting themselves up as a saviour of other people and then as the person that needs saving. And so the presence of God is replaced by us being codependent on each other. Where are we going to find life and identity? With our friends. Because that's where we feel complete and that's where we feel needed. Now a second way that community goes off the rails is shame management. We're not so familiar with this in, the West, in Western cultures. Um, we think in terms of guilt. But shame is very powerful, particularly in, in Asian societies. Shame and guilt. Adam and Eve see their nakedness differently after they've, taken, they've disobeyed God. They, they suddenly become aware that they're naked and they're really ashamed of it. So they decide they're going to make coverings for themselves and they use really inappropriate material, fig leaves. And these leaves apparently have quite a lot of holes in them, so it's not a great thing to use to cover your nakedness. But we've got community here as a conspiracy to cover up our shame. Shame cultures work like this. Shame is corporate. Everyone's shamed when somebody's tarnished. It's reputation-based. Women often carry the reputation of the whole family. In parts of India and Pakistan... The reputation and honour of the family is called the izat. And if the woman is tarnished, the izat of the whole family is tarnished. This is why, in some cultures, when a, a person becomes a Christian, the family try and kill them, because they've brought shame on the family. And the root of it is back here in Genesis 3. Shame. Hiding from God. Making fig leaves. It's all about covering up shame with a pretense that everything's all right. So shame cultures manage shame. They do it by cover-up, secrecy, scapegoating, and slandering the reputation of other people. Their communities become overrun with gossip, and reputation protection, threats, violence, even honour killings. And it's all because underneath, someone, somewhere, is protecting their shame. You see, it's not a long trip from Adam um, making fig leaves with Eve to him attempting to get her killed to manage his own shame when what they've done goes public. Back in chapter 2, he sees Eve. He's full of poetry. He says, oh, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She came from man. I love you, baby. <laughs> chapter 3. He says, you know, God, I know there's a death sentence over those who disobey you, but she gave me the fruit. <laughs> it's the first attempt at an honour killing. She must bear the, the brunt of the shame of the family. It's a community of shame management. And what it's done is made our words about reputation central, not God's word. Our appearance of glory is made central, not God's glory. So our purpose then is family shame covering. You go into the fig leaf business. 
It makes hiding from God's presence central to community, not being in his presence. Now both of these things, codependency, shame management, are ways of making your community your rescuer. And that's what happens to community at decreation. And this is what's happening in every culture and every community around the world. From the uh, global macro level, we've been praying about (coughs) Syria, down to the individual family level and your own way you conduct yourself in life. We are twisted, uh, out of rec- almost out of, sh- out of recognition, certainly out of shape, by this episode that happens here in Genesis 3. We function in a codependent way and we man- try and manage and hide our shame. Now that's what happens to community. What about mission? What about the purpose? Now I've just got to deal with this very quickly. Mission is mangled. Because human beings still have purpose, but it's all twisted up by what happens at the decreation. God gives a word of judgment. You notice how he speaks to um, the serpent, and then the woman, and then to Adam. And to the woman, God's word strikes at the very filling of the earth part of their mission. Bearing children now is painful, a reminder that things are not as they should have been. And the marriage relationship suffers too. From a joyful partnership, it now turns into manipulation and abuse. What about Adam? Well, working the ground and developing the earth now is hard work. It's toilsome. It's laborious. Thorns and thistles. It's painful. And whereas before human life could go on being replenished by relating to God, who gives life, now there's a death sentence. Dust you are, and to dust you will return. Where does that leave us? Human beings are exiled from the presence of God from life in, in its fullness. But there are glimmers of mercy even in this passage. God clothes them. He gives them some protection against the hostile world. He, as it were, gives them back some of their inheritance. And he makes them a promise. In Genesis 3, verse 15, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a hint here that God is going to turn things around in the future. He's going to put enmity between the serpent, the enemy of God, and the human beings. And that there will be one individual who will bruise the serpent's head. That means crush him. And the whole Bible is about who is this serpent crusher and when is he going to come? Mercy is there. But what about us? What about our identity? We're still made in the image of God. We still make culture, but we're warped now. We're bent out of shape. We're unraveled. We're less than we were supposed to be. But we have an awareness of an echo, distantly heard of creation, the way it was meant to be. Paradise is lost, but we still yearn to go back there. And we try over and over again to make heaven on earth, to bring about our own new creation. We all try to be our own saviour, our own Lord. We try to bring heaven on earth, but it never lasts. We need something more. We need recreation. And we're going to find out next week how that happens. Let's pray together.